All right, guys, we're recording. Um, hey, guys, welcome to, I think we're on episode eight, eight. of uh, Deborah Gets Red Pilled. That's a good, a good number for us because we're past the average lifespan of a, uh, of a podcast this week. I think the average lifespan is seven episodes. So, um, yeah, I guess uh, we didn't have any emails this week. Um, just to get the quick business out of the way, we, you can email us at Deborah gets red pilled at protonmail.com and find us on Twitter at Deborah gets pilled, Instagram, Deborah gets red pilled and, um, value for value. If you're getting any value out of the show, um, kick us a couple bucks. You could be the first one to do it. That would be awesome. Um, I'll put the link on how to do that in the show notes. So, um, we had a guest lined up and she had to cancel for some, uh, pretty crazy reasons. Um, but luckily we got another, uh, another guest to step in on short notice. We got, um, Doug McKenty from the shift podcast and, um, we're excited to have him here today. Uh, do you want to, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, Doug? Sure. Yeah, I've been doing, well, I guess I've been in radio off and on for, um, probably, well, sort of, I guess about 15 years. I started at my local radio station, KZYX, here in Mendocino County, California, and I was doing a live call-in show, uh, and I helped produce uh, like a healthcare show, and then I had my own interview program on there for a couple of years, twice a month, um, which was fun. I like doing live shows. Uh, and then about three years ago, I started doing this podcast. Um, it's been a little bit off and on. I think I did 40 episodes, and Got a day job for about a year and a half, and now I've been kicking in the shift with Doug McKinty. Um, I've done 20 episodes here since, I guess, end of May, um, and I'm pretty dedicated now. I've been um, pretty happy with the quality of the guests that I'm getting, and, and it just seems like it's a really important time to try to get uh, some of this information out there. A lot of this information that's getting censored um, by the social media corporations and and by the mainstream media, so I'm happy to to try to help and, and educate people as best they can about what I think is really happening in the world. And um, <clears throat> I'm excited to be on this show because I, I really like the concept um, the red, red pilling Deborah. We'll see, we'll see how far she, she lasts before she, uh, yeah. she breaks and she realizes. My head is, my head's okay. on the verge of exploding. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She made it's, it through that Charlie Robinson episode. So I think yeah. she's doing good. <laughs> Well, it's a wild ride. I mean, even, um, I mean, I probably, I started, it's kind of, I, I almost hate to admit it, but um, I started listening to Alex Jones in 2002. I lived in Austin at the time. He was on the radio. That's where his home base is in Texas. And um, I just thought he was a nut job, you know, crazy talking about 9-11 truth. And I started looking into it. Uh, and just over time, uh, it's been amazing that, I have kind of woken up to the fact that I think the hardest part is thinking that the mainstream media must be telling us the truth when all these mainstream media organizations to say the same thing over and over again. Um, and you really feel like, well, there's got to be something to it. All these journalists must be doing their own research and coming up with, with the truth of this. And I spent a while um, probably Starting in 2015 or 16, when the when the fake news meme came out, I spent a lot of time comparing and contrasting because, you know, for 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 a long time, I would read 
you know, I would listen to NPR or I'd read articles from mainstream sources and then I'd compare them to the quote unquote conspiracy theory sites. And, um, and then I took a deep dive, really analyzing the primary source material from each source that, that I, uh, that I would encounter and just discovered that the mainstream, there might be a hundred or 200 articles out there about the same thing. They'd always link to the same source. And that source was often highly suspect. Um, and it was pretty easy to start to see that the, the independent news outlets that are considered quote unquote conspiracy theory uh, were actually doing real investigative journalism. And that was the difference. They just did better work. And, and over time uh, I've started to, to just develop a worldview that's radically different than what they show you on the mainstream media and what almost everybody else believes. But um, I just, I studied history and philosophy at the university level. I knew how to do this kind of academic research and, and I just stuck with it, you know, until I would go down every, every different rabbit hole until a, a larger picture starts to develop. And as crazy as some of the ideas are, there's actually a lot more evidence that there really is something else going on in the background than, than most um, media organizations would have you believe. So I, well, certainly after once, once I started doing the podcast, it's almost hard to do a podcast like this where every week I'm talking to, to serious experts, uh, really intelligent people and learning more and more and constantly just um, discovering just how deep the rabbit hole goes in terms of what I, it seems to me that, you know, the upper classes are, are kind of inflicting, I would say, upon the vast majority of people on the planet at this point. So, yeah, your um, your podcast has had some really um, impressive. You have an impressive guest list, and it's kind of flown under the radar for me. I didn't know about it until you you told me about it on on a little Telegram chat that we're on together. Yeah. So, um, do you only? Um, upload it to SoundCloud or is it, is it available elsewhere? I've been on YouTube forever. The shadow banning for my show started as soon as I uploaded it onto YouTube. I, my very first episode was with Robert David Steele, who was uh, an ex-intelligence officer who's kind of a whistleblower at this point. And I was getting 2,000 hits a day for the first three days on YouTube. And after that, if I get 100 hits in a day, it's like a miracle. They just... Yeah shut it down and stop distributing it. So it's distribution has been a real challenge for me. And since I've picked up doing it again, I'm actually right now in the process of like uploading it to 20 different social media sites. And I mean, I haven't even really started to do that yet. I just switched my RSS feed over to SoundCloud uh, and I use YouTube, but principally to just upload the videos so that I have, you know, a link to link to. Um, but the distribution has to come literally from people sharing it from their social media sites because uh, there's no distribution happening from uh, any of those tech companies whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that sounds about right. Um, have you looked into um, BitChute at all? Yeah, I just uploaded my last episode on BitChute. That was the first one. It's kind of a pain in the butt. I don't know. I probably clung to YouTube and Facebook for a little bit too long just because, you know, it takes hours to, to upload the videos and it's a lot of work and I was hoping things might pick up. And I've also just been busy with the production side of things trying to do the interviews. So now that that's a little bit more streamlined, I can spend more time on distribution. But I think I'll be, I'll definitely be on BitChute. 
Um, I've been looking into Rockfin and there's DTube and, you know, I'll, I'll be, I'll be putting myself out there more. There was also, interestingly, I think I had this kind of tug that I didn't just want to preach to the choir. Like I wanted to be able to change people's minds on YouTube. I mean, I'm kind of happy to be on this show actually, just because the format of the show and the, and the concept of it is, is really brilliant um, in terms of trying to talk to kind of a, you know, a person with a more of an ordinary worldview and see what they think when they get confronted with these kinds of ideas. Cause it's so challenging to actually do that virtually where it's so easy for people to just be inside their own echo chamber. And then they, you know, I've actually done some, some interviews recently about the idea of cognitive dissonance, where even when you do approach people, they won't listen to your arguments. You know, they just can't pay attention. You're showing them your, your evidence, your primary documentation. I've, you know, peer reviewed science. People just won't pay attention to it because they assume it's going to be on the mainstream news if it's true. Um, I think, uh, I think Deborah's already had just in our short time of doing this has already had a little bit of experience with that. Have, yeah. Is that, is that right, yeah. Deborah? <clears throat> quite a bit, quite a bit of, I mean, in my small little tiny world, quite a bit of pushback. Right. So, um, I, I got to tell you, I think that if people approach this information with an open mind, then eventually they're going to change their minds. I think the arguments are pretty solid. I mean, whether it's 9-11 truth, whether it's questioning vaccines or questioning the current COVID narrative. I mean, there's a lot of issues that it's just amazing that, you know, the mainstream just whitewashes. It's like, wait a minute, I, you know, I have an intelligent question here. Will you answer this question? No, no, we're going to ignore you and pretend like you're a conspiracy theorist and call you names. And you, then you got to be like, well, you know, something weird is going on, right? This isn't normal. People should be comfortable questioning their belief systems and looking at factual information. Um, so something's happening, right? Yeah. Yeah. The question with the whole cognitive dissonance thing is is really one that I'm trying to figure out and struggling with right now. And I... um it's so hard right now because everybody's so divided and you have to tread so lightly if you don't want to, I mean, families are being separated along these lines and, and stuff like that. And it's, yeah. it's sad. And um, what are your thoughts on why I'm on, I don't want to pose this question as like, I'm you or I, or people that are trying to find out the truth are better than other people. But why do you think people like us are interested in finding out a different perspective on stuff and others, people that, you know, I, I came from the, um, I was, you know, from the punk rock scene. I was a punk rocker from the time I was right. 15 till my mid thirties, like pretty heavily. Now I'm married and domesticated and stuff, but I still yeah. like enjoy the same music that I liked when I was 16 years old. And, um, you know, all that subculture stuff's really true and dear to my heart. And I see guys like, this guy Harley Flanagan who was an original member of the Cro-Mags and he's like got a 300 page book talking about how he was like the toughest guy on the Lower East Side in the early 80s and never lost a fight and now he's like putting pictures up on Instagram of him wearing a mask and bragging about voting Biden and I just like that right. to me like why and uh, people that I was in the the Bay Area punk scene with are are doing the same thing you know and I'm, I just struggle why do you think some people want to look into it more and i i i'll, I'll uh bookend that by saying like i'm um 
also a little bit biased towards the right now. So I, I can see that I'm doing that just because I think like, oh, maybe I'll be freer sure. if Trump wins, even though that's probably not the right way to look at it. So I'm not 100% right either. Well, it is interesting. And I mean, I guess as a disclaimer, I would say I'm probably have the same bias. It does seem like a lot of conspiracy theorists tend towards going towards the right if you're going to use the left right paradigm at all. Um, but that's not entirely true, actually. I mean, there are certainly I mean, global research is, is one of my go to sources, and it's a very, very much a left wing uh, new source, but also open-minded to the, to a lot of these conspiracy theory uh, concepts. So it's not across the board. I think, I think it boils down to, um, your belief or trust in authority. And that's what I've noticed over and over again, even with this coronavirus thing. Um, there's a lot of social pressure that makes people want to conform to the, to the typical narratives. Um, and then if you have a belief in authority, like with the mask wearing, you know, most people, and certainly in, in my neighborhood where there's a lot of social pressure to wear the masks in public, everybody's going to wear a mask. But what kind of fascinated me was how people reacted when you were in private with them, whether they were going to be really hardcore about it or whether they were going to be lax. Most of the people that I know on a one-on-one -on -one situation are typically almost like, thank God we're alone so we can relax and take off our masks for a second, you know, if you yeah. really tap into how they're feeling about all of this. But in public, there's so much um, social pressure to conform to the dominant narrative. And then, um, and then just in general, if people, I mean, I've almost started looking at it, I actually have started looking at it like a cult indoctrination. Um, I've been doing some interviews about this concept of scientism because I, yeah. I've actually, I've interviewed, well, you know, what, what's happened in the last couple of months was Dr. Andy Kaufman, Corona comes out and then this guy, Dr. Kaufman starts talking about how, you know, viral theory, the viral theory of contagion is a bunch of bunk and it's actually this terrain theory that's happening. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty big leap. Are we, are we going to another flat earth? you know, place here. Um, and I started to interview a lot of scientists about the coronavirus and really getting into what modern viral theory actually is, like what the science actually says. And I'd run into this in the vaccine situation before too, where um, I've always been a little bit skeptical of vaccines actually. And it was kind of interesting when the every five years or so, even I'd say I'd, I'd be like, well, I don't really know about the vaccine thing. I'm a little bit skeptical. I'm going to go and, and do some, you know, a real deep dive and do some research. And every time I'd find a little bit more information, I was like, my God, I didn't know that. That's crazy. You know, these things really are something to be suspicious of. And then eventually I was reading, I probably read dozens of uh, peer reviewed source material, you know, going straight to PubMed and, and other sources like this to really study the science of vaccines. And sure enough, I mean, there's all kinds of science that says we don't really know what these adjuvants are doing to in the body. Uh, they assumed for a long time that they got urinated out and it was no big deal. But now they've discovered that they bioaccumulate in different places in the body. So if you get a bunch of aluminum, it can accumulate in your brain or in different organ systems. And this stuff is really toxic. And so if you get 
and they've never done any studies for multiple vaccines. They'll do a study for one vaccine, say this is safe, although they always then compare that vaccine to another vaccine as the placebo, not a saline shot. Right. So it's always like, well, that's weird too, you know, and, and, and it so- doesn't show like what would happen if you stack up multiple vaccines that's right. at once, which is probably what happens with, with little babies a lot, right? You take, and they're taking multiple doses of multiple things at all exactly. at the same, same time. With, with no safety studies, no safety studies being done to show that it's healthy to inject a baby with multiple vaccines, you, you know, <laughs> what the yeah. effects may be after five or six of these things. Yeah. Um, and then I'm out in, in the community here or out in the world and people start going, oh, those anti-vaxxers, they're just anti-science. And I'm, I was literally almost taken aback the first time I heard somebody say that, like, well, what? And then I try to be like, well, what do you think about this peer reviewed study? And then it's like, oh no, I'm not gonna look at that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would send emails to people or on Facebook, I'd be arguing, you know, here's the five, because people would say, well, I believe in the peer reviewed science. So until you have peer reviewed science, you know, I'm not gonna, I think vaccines are safe and effective. And so I'd send them five peer reviewed articles that show, you know, what we've been talking about here and then just get no response, you know? <laughs> and yeah. it's like, why can't we have a conversation about the science here, the real science, um, and, and yet, and then people, the general population seem to think they know what science is. And so, you know, people have started calling this scientism, where there's almost like a mythology out there about what science says. I mean, yeah, just to go back like- to my point, I've been, like I talked to Dr. Stephanie Seneff, I've talked to Dr. Judy Mikovits, and they're coming, I've talked to Dr. Tom Cowan, these people are coming up with a whole other viral theory about what viruses do. This, this, what people think science says about viruses is a theory that was created by Louis Pasteur in 1860. And it hasn't really been updated. And yet science, real science, discovered that human beings have a virome, trillions of viruses in their body all the time. You know, previous to that, people thought you only got a virus if it invaded your body and it was bad. And now they know there's a, a virome and they know there's a birome. There's bacteria. We have billions of bacteria and billions of viruses in our body and they actually serve this function. There's been all this science for the last 20 years trying to figure out what the function of your virome is and how it works and what's going on. Nobody knows about any of this. They all just think, oh, a virus comes into your body, makes you sick. If you get a vaccine, you'll be fine, you know? And they yeah. call that science, but it's not the science. So why do they believe this? Why isn't the mainstream media telling us, the, you know, educating us as to the actual science? Why are we getting spoon-fed this mythology? And then why are people like me who are reading the science and interviewing scientists and trying to educate the public about what science is actually saying, getting called out as anti-science. Or being censored, right? It's crazy to the point of being censored, exactly. Like it's totally crazy. There's something else going on. Um, Deborah, what do you you think about this whole scientism thing? Like the way that, like Neil deGrasse Tyson is is being deified like a god. Right. It seems like. What do you think about about what what Doug's talking about right now? <clears throat> Excuse me. I um, it's curious that when you bring up a, a, a different science that it's called unscientific. Um, it seems yeah. like it would it would create more curiosity and and. Uh, you know, 
that people would want want to know. Um, right. But but I stand, you know, my feet are still kind of. I mean, Adam's moving me over slowly, but right. um, <laughs> you know, the, the the point that you made about um, authority, people who who respect authority, and I'm one of those. I that's the way I was raised. I'm close to seventy. I, you know, it's it's not easy to to switch right. your way of thinking because it's so entrenched and. Um, you know, it's real easy to say, okay, well, my doctor recommends this. So, you know, and he studied it. I haven't. So I'm going to go with what my authority figure tells me to do. Right. Cause he knows more than me. Yeah. Um, it's, that's, it's a real easy, comfortable place to be. So it's, you know, you stir it up a little bit. It's very uncomfortable. Right. <laughs> well, it is, it is really uncomfortable. Um, to come to the conclusion that you, I mean, I don't even want to put it, I don't want to try to put it harshly, but you know, I think the vast majority of people have been fooled in a sense into a worldview that's not really accurate, mm -hmm. but when, and when you're <laughs> confronted, I mean, that's why we have cognitive dissonance. You know, I, I have cognitive dissonance. I'm constantly working on my own confirmation bias and my own cognitive dissonance to try to overcome it. And I have, and I feel you know, as someone that studied philosophy in the past, which is similar to science in terms of we try to, we're trying to use reason and logic to solve, you know, our, our human problems. And you have to have a, a certain amount of integrity towards that. Like even the, like a, a Judy Mikovits, for example, I mean, these are, and Dr. Stephanie Seneff, I mean, I've just, I've had a number of conversations with those two recently, and they both have two PhDs, highly educated people, but I would call them scientists with with real integrity and when i talk to them even as a lay person they have respect for my point of view and they're very humble people like real scientists like you're talking about deborah are curious humble and very open-minded because when the data shifts they need to shift their opinion they can't you know they don't want to be so so hardened and stiffened into one point of view and think that that's the only way, that's the truth, and, and, and disregard any evidence to the contrary, you know. But it, it requires a lot of integrity that a lot of people don't have, especially when your job is on the line. I mean, I think this happens a lot in our culture with journalists and, and doctors where they're expected to follow the party line. And if they stray too far from that party line, you know, they could clearly lose their license or lose their jobs. And we've seen that with doctors mm -hmm. who've spoken mm -hmm. out the, the hydroxychloroquine issue just recently, the perfect example, but, and journalists that speak out, they lose their jobs. Cheryl Atkinson, uh, even Dan Rather, you know? <laughs> um, but I, I, and I, I, when I heard you talking, I was thinking too of a lot of part of this scientism mythology is that there is this consensus of experts. I get this all the time. Like there's a consensus of experts. The science is settled. We've heard these memes, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's not actually how science works. Like you were saying, Deborah, you would think that when confronted with new data, people would be curious about pursuing that. Let's take the example. I've interviewed Dr. Andrew Wakefield, right? He's, everybody thinks he's a quack. He lost his license because, and, and when you talk to, to these people, the average person thinks, well, his, he did this study and he claimed that the MMR vaccine caused autism and that's been totally debunked and, and he's a quack. Yeah. My mom, uh, that's the one thing, like if you t try to talk about somebody that 
that's shut off about vaccines. That's the one thing. That's the one that they'll quote. They'll say, oh, that was debunked. Absolutely. So I'm doing the interview. I'm prepping for the interview with this guy. And I, I figure I better go actually read the original study to find out what everybody's talking about. And I go back and I read the study and you know, the study, first of all, has nothing to do with vaccines and autism. It's about gut bacteria and autism because this was Wakefield specialty. And he has a small cohort. There's only 12 kids, autistic kids in the cohort, and he's going to study their, their gut bacteria to see if there's a correlation, which now has been proven that there is actually. Um, but about halfway through the paper, he just happens to mention one sentence says, well, nine out of the 12 kids in this small cohort, their parents and their doctors have told me that they presented symptoms very shortly after they took the MMR vaccine. So he's like, huh, that's a, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation, but I'm just going to mention that in the paper because it's something that we noticed. And so then the paper goes on and it shows this talking about gut bacteria, nothing to do with the vaccines. And at the very, in the concluding paragraph at the very bottom, it says, because of this correlation in this small cohort, between the MMR vaccine and these autistic patients, we recommend doing further study into a potential relationship between autism and the MMR vaccine. It was a recommendation for further study. That's all it was. Just like you're talking about, Deborah, a scientist noticed a correlation, was curious, and wanted to fur- you know, further study with a larger group of people to see if the, the correlation had any merit to it. That's all it was. How do you debunk a recommendation to look into something? And yet you talk to anybody on the street and they think they have no idea what the original paper was about and they, and they think it was debunked. Well, it's not, it's not debunked. It was never debunked. It was just about trying to get the scientific community to be curious about a, a potential correlation. That's all. So strange the reaction, right? <laughs> well, what, Deborah, why do you think that that, that 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 uh study is is treated that way and why do you think that that they tried to silence his voice on on it god that's a good question i mean it seems pretty benign to me to suggest a study i i you know i I knew who andrew wakefield was but i didn't know about this paper or well what happens what would happen if if maybe other people started looking into it other scientists found that it was right what do you think would happen to that mmr vaccine well, you know, it's there's too much money involved. They don't want right. to give up all the. So I, I, you know, I guess again, you have to follow the money. Why do they want to debunk this? Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. Following the money. I mean, that's. I think that at the end of the day, maybe is what separates out the conspiracy theorists from everybody <laughs> else. If you look at the mainstream media, if you read their articles, they never follow the money. And if you follow the money, I mean, one great example, another great example I've been following a lot is Whitney Webb because I love her work. I don't she's, know if you're familiar. She's the best. I, I mean, I, she should be taught in journalism school as the, the epitome of what real investigative journalism is. She should when have I, won the Nobel Peace Prize for her Epstein stuff. Right. Like, <laughs> I mean, like for real, like it was that good. She, she deserves accolades for her work, certainly. And um, it when you look at what she does and what really sets her apart is that she does follow the money. She will do the research. I mean, I, I'm the kind of guy 
Uh, like I said, I, I spent a lot of time comparing and contrasting all the source material from like a mainstream article versus an independent or quote unquote conspiracy theory article. Um, just trying to see, you know, who's doing the better investigative journalism work. And just every single time it was, it was boiling down to these independent researchers. But then when I looked at, when I first encountered Whitney Webb's work and I started following her source material, I was like, where is this coming from? Like she was clearly doing deep dives into, into corporate malfeasance, you know? And she was finding relationships between the boards of directors of this company and that company. The stuff that she's been doing, this dark, the Dark Winter series going back 20 years to correlate the same people that were doing the anthrax simulations prior to the anthrax attacks in 2001 are exactly the same people, same companies, I mean, she can go down the company, she looks at the members of the board of directors and she finds people that are on different boards of directors of the different groups of companies. And then all these companies are the same people that are receiving. It's you always know, Robert Cadlick. Right, right. That's a big one, yeah. <laughs> but it boils down to the same group of people that have been involved with Fauci for, for decades and receiving billions of dollars in, in government grants per each, you know, whether it was the anthrax attacks or the zika virus thing or now the coronavirus thing or in you know you can go back to the aids uh the, the aids situation in the 80s and 90s where these same groups of people are i mean just billions and billions of dollars coming from the government straight into these same companies uh and always under pretty suspicious circumstances in terms of the science there's always a group of scientists that are saying hey wait a minute you know these companies aren't really following the science as I see it. There's other treatment protocols that are way less expensive. Uh, the hydroxychloroquine thing, just to me, really stands out because, I mean, and we were, you know, we should, we could segue into the, into the left-right paradigm because this is so often how they divide and conquer us. I mean, I see it so clearly now <laughs> where something comes up and, you know, people are like, oh, everything's always so politicized here in the United States. And so something comes up that should be just objective about, about the scientific evidence. And, and instead, it becomes parsed into, well, if you're, you know, it became the hydroxychloroquine issue, just to use it as a, as a real solid example, became, well, Trump mentions hydroxychloroquine as a potential treatment for coronavirus. So everybody on the right, all of a sudden, the way the mainstream narrative comes at you is if you're on the right, you believe Trump and hydroxychloroquine. But if you're on the left, you believe in science. And science says that remdesivir is the way to go. Well, remdesivir is... Gilead Sciences, the company that was Donald Rumsfeld, used to be the CEO of Gilead Sciences, been connected to Fauci for decades, was lined up, got $92 million to, to push the, to, to manufacture the remdesivir. The remdesivir study was terrible, shorter hospitalization times, best case scenario, no help on the mortality with coronavirus, then given hundreds of millions of dollars to distribute the remdesivir, totally pushed by the mainstream media as if science is promoting this. Well, the, and then again, what's the, the, what was the difference in, in price per dose between the remdesivir and the hydroxychloroquine? Oh. Right. I mean, it's $6 for the hydroxychloroquine and it's $3,500 per dose for remdesivir, right? Yeah. I mean, clearly there's financial incentive from all these guys to push the remdesivir and the hydroxychloroquine, Dr. Zelenko 
who was in New York during the heart of the epidemic in March and April, saving, saving lives with this, with this uh, protocol with hydroxychloroquine and zinc. He just finally got the, his protocol peer reviewed just a few weeks ago. Of course, no mention in the mainstream media, right? It's, that's yeah. all old news now. Nobody's talking about hydroxychloroquine. That was just some, something crazy Trump said months ago. Uh, and it's, a, it's an FDA-approved medicine, yeah. right? Well, it's the hydroxychloroquine is like one of the, one of the top medicines the, the, on the World Health Organization list because it's been used for malaria for decades and decades. And so I, did, I, I was following the science about hydroxychloroquine and watching it get parsed up into the left-right paradigm, which I just ignore the left-right paradigm because I'm so sick of it's clearly a divide-and-conquer technique to split people apart. You're better than get, me right now. Get them, and, and you know, people love to fight. It's just, a, it's just an inherent part of human nature, you know? Yep. <laughs> um, it actually takes a, a, a bigger person to separate themselves and not feel the need to, to have these arguments and to just, you know, and to feel comfortable just making choices for themselves. I mean, this is where I've been trying to promote. I call it instead of free health care, we really need health care freedom. We need to be able to choose our own. If I want hydroxychloroquine, I, why not just go get hydro? I mean, why is it a public argument? Why was it ever in the news? Like, isn't that a personal choice between you and your doctor? You look, you get, you're, you're feeling congested. Maybe you have coronavirus, you know? <laughs> what do you think would have happened had Trump not ever mentioned it? You think well, it would have still been uh, tossed out? Yeah, I mean, there's no question that it was not profitable. It was not the way that Fauci wanted things to go. Um, the, the big pharmaceutical corporations have always been pushing these antivirals. Remdesivir was, was pulled off the shelf. Um, it's very similar to the AZT thing, which is controversial with, with the AIDS epidemic, where there were many scientists that were like, this AZT stuff is, is hurting people. Or even we could talk about chemotherapy. They're all in the same class of drugs. They're, they're all, you know, they, they enter the body and they try to kill off. It's this very martial uh, attacking the body to try to kill off the invading virus or the invading, you know. And whereas these other scientists that I've been talking to, right, that are more on this terrain theory side really are saying, look, if you have a strong immune system and you take care of yourself, you're not going to get sick from these viruses. So let's let's focus on you know, strengthening the body with supplementation and diet and exercise rather than when you get sick, trying to kill off the, the invader because you end up killing off yourself, right? I mean, you it's hurt hard yourself to do with when these you're, poisons. When you're locked in your house, it's hard to do all that stuff. Well, and, but when you're not being educated about it either, I yeah. mean, you know, the mainstream media covers up the, the doctors that are tell, telling, you know, talking about this science. I mean, one of the things that's been boggling my mind lately with my conversation, like I had a conversation with this Dr. Stephanie Seneff, she says, I mean, because science has progressed, like the, the scientists, the mythology, what the mainstream tells you science says is this like kind of old school prefabricated mythology of what science says, but, but people actually have been doing really good work on molecular biology for the last four or five decades, they discovered the virome and the biome in the 80s, and they've been continuing to understand all how these different chemicals, 
you know, interact in the body, what the functions of the, of the, and there's, I mean, there's even epigenetics involved here. Like the theories now where epigenetics actually is starting to be accepted by even mainstream scientists because it used to be a crazy conspiracy theory, but the science was too good. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't keep sweeping it under the rug. And this is the notion that, you know, your gut bacteria works together with your DNA. And this is where like Stephanie Seneff and, and Judy Mikovits are going, where the viruses are involved in upgrading your DNA. That, they, that actually on a genetic level, these are the process, it's a process of human evolution. Um, that, that the virome and the biome both are very helpful. Like if your DNA doesn't produce a certain chemical that you need, then your gut biome will actually adjust and these bacteria will produce that chemical. They work symbiotically with your own DNA. So if your body's not, doesn't have the DNA encoded to produce the chemical that you need, then the biome will start to produce that for you. And it's looking like the viruses, then the virome will take that information if not from your own biome, because there's a lot of it that happens inside your own body, but then cross from other people. Maybe other people, their bodies have figured out the, the correct DNA sequence to deal with a certain toxin, for example. And so then you get the virus and, and from them, and then that virus enters your body and it actually recodes because the, the viruses, some, some of them have DNA, most of them are just an RNA sequence and then they get into your body and they upgrade that RNA through the retrovirus. I'm learning all this science <laughs> through the retroviruses can transcribe the RNA from these outside viruses and then upload the new information into your own DNA inside your body. Um, so it's a process of human evolution. It's actually helpful. It's a symbiotic relationship that we have with, um, with all of these germs. Right. And uh, yeah, it's this totally new theory. It's been coming out. And so I, I was saying with all the new information, Dr. Seneff is saying there should be a revolution in healthcare. It should be extremely inexpensive and we could almost eradicate disease with the knowledge that we have right now. It's just that the scientists that have the knowledge can't get it out there because the, the government and the current pharmaceutical corporate system is in complete control of the healthcare and they won't let these inexpensive supplemental naturopathic, you know, theories even into the space. I mean, I've talked to doctors, Dr. Robert Young, he can't get published in the Lancet, you know, he's never going to get into any of these, any of these big peer reviewed studies, even though they have their own, you know, their own um, journals that they do get published in, they don't get, read by anyone in the mainstream. And Dr. Young, I mean, according to st some of the information coming out of the work that he's doing is curing people like 80%, 80, 90% of people that come to him with cancer. I mean, he's curing people with stage four cancer in the 80 percentile ranges. This is blowing chemotherapy numbers away. Chemotherapy is terrible. Uh, when you look at, I mean, there's some, something like a three to 5% rate using chemotherapy after a five-year period of time. I mean, they can get it, they can shrink a tumor, but once you stop using the therapy, it comes back. Whereas with Dr. Young, he cleanses the body, he gets you on a, on a, a um, very basic pH diet, and uh, it just goes away and never comes back. 
I mean, he, people have figured it out, you know, it's just not profitable. So do you think um, all of what you were just talking about has, is the um, argument where like the, the DNC or the, the left-leaning people would want the want government run healthcare as opposed to like a free market healthcare system. I'm sorry. I didn't really pose that question very well. Well, I mean, I, I do, I get it. And this is why I, you know, I've done, I, my personal history, you know, I grew up in a Republican family and I, I pretty quickly was like, ah, eh, there's something wrong with this. And I actually kind of went full libertarian and now I, I'm basically don't see any function for government just about whatsoever. I mean, maybe in on a community level, I think the way I pose things now is we've got to decentralize power. Any kind of centralization of anything is going to attract corrupt individuals to the top of that hierarchy. And those corrupt individuals are not going to have our best interests at heart. So like on a local level, let's decentralize power. Let communities be able to make choices for themselves about healthcare, uh, about education, about these most important aspects of human life and not put it in the hands of some, you know, somebody thousands of miles away who claims to know what's best for everybody because every community is different. Every individual has different needs. I mean, we need to decentralize the power structure. And I mean, whatever ism or label you want to put on that, I, I think it should be a conversation about, you know, centralizing power and decentralizing power and not left, right, or socialism or capitalism or, or whatever. These other isms just don't really function to promote, you know, a healthier living environment for all of us. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it concerns me. Well, there's a couple of things. And again, to even go back to the left-right paradigm, I mean, there's this Another kind of mythology out there, which I guess goes back to Marxism, and Marxism gets really kind of pushed these days in the philosophy of Karl Marx. And that is that, you know, you, if you have a free market, then the evil capitalist will take over everything. And then you have to have the government to keep the capitalist from, from controlling everything. And so the government comes in. And even for Marx, this was only going to be a phase of the socialism phase. And then we were going to have this communist, essentially anarchist utopia. So Marx, Marx thought that communism would be the ultimate result of socialism, right? Communism was the utopia and socialism was the way to get there. Pretty much. Yeah. He had these phases uh, of evolution. And at first it was going to take the, the violent revolution to overcome the capitalist dictatorship. And then, um, and then eventually after socialism for a while, people were going to get used to living without that, that power structure and those hierarchies. And then we were going to be able to evolve to the final stage of history in his view, which was this communist phase where we didn't even need the power structures and everybody just, you know, lived in this, in this kind of, I think it's a utopian concept where everybody, you know, is just going to be helping everybody else and, and yeah. things are going to work perfectly. You can, be, in, in you can be a farmer for the first half of the day and a poet for the second. Right, right. Um, but what I have come to believe, and this is, I, I, um, I've spoken with uh, a guy named Patrick Wood about what's currently being called technocracy. It's a, it, I think at this point we can call it a form of fascism. It's more of a left-wing form of fascism based on this scientism concept where 
the, the scientists kind of become the leaders, like Fauci would be the, the priest class of a, a technocratic state. And this seems to be the way things are, are evolving. But Patrick Wood, his mentor was this guy named Anthony Sutton. And Anthony Sutton was a historian that was writing in the 60s and 70s. I think he passed away either in the 80s or the 90s. But he wrote a series of books about how Wall Street was funding the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, and this is where I wish that people would really understand this history so they could get completely away from the left-right paradigm and start to understand what's happening in the, in the world today, which is that the capitalists themselves, the robber baron class in the 19, you know, or circa 1890, 1900, and there's actually evidence they were even funding Marx himself, that the, the old aristocracies that had lost power after the French Revolution were actually the money people behind, uh, behind Marx and Engels in the 1850s. Um, but by uh, 1900, 1910, we're seeing a lot of Wall Street money going and banker money from this this you know we can talk about the central banking cartel which seems to be the the center power structure of this whole you know the whole cabal concept if you want to go there but it was these guys that were heavily funding the quote unquote left um and and the communist revolution in russia i've started to look at a lot of these social movements uh, as the very wealthy upper classes manipulating the people, the mass of people into different social movements as a form of social engineering. They're trying out different types of social control. Um, Is that so what you see? Um, do you see that as what's happening in, in downtown Portland right now? I definitely consider like this whole Black Lives Matter thing that's happening as much as I certainly advocate and I do see s systemic racism, my solution would be to decriminalize drugs, which they did do in Oregon. Yeah. One of the good things that happened yeah. last week. We did one thing right. Finally, yeah, but. yeah. But um, I am afraid when you, again, when you follow the money, you see a lot of the Black Lives Matter financing coming from these exact same very wealthy people. George Soros is definitely involved. And even when all the corporations seem to start funding them, I mean, they've been funded to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And yet, instead of going back into the African-American community where you think it would be going to actually help, you know, to help recover, to help them recover from the, the racist policies in the 50s and 60s, like redlining and such that clearly ha uh, have prevented them from uh, amassing, uh, you know, the capital that that much of the white population has been able to to amass because of, of you know, our our parents and grandparents were able to buy nice houses in the 50s and 60s that are worth a million dollars or half a million dollars today. Um, you know, instead of funneling that money back into the African American community, a lot of that money went to the Joe Biden campaigns. What it looked like to yeah. me. Um, Deborah, were so, you aware of that? That no. um, that goes through through Act yeah. Blue, right? Yeah, that's what so I've seen. Act Blue, if I can, let me tell me if I'm getting this wrong. Act Blue was just like kind of the sneaky name of the fundraising wing of the DNC for Joe Biden this time around, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I didn't. What percentage of of donations from Black Lives Matter were being diverted to Act Blue? I mean, from what I've seen, it's been most of the money. 
I, a lot of the money and all the corporate, the big corporate donations seem like they were going and I, and I haven't seen any evidence. I mean, I haven't dug into it super deeply, um, but what I saw looked legit and I haven't seen evidence that a hundred million dollars is going into the African-American communities right now. You know, I mean, with the black Panther movement, for example, in the, in the late, in the sixties and seventies, which is a movement that I, I thought was, you know, I, I, I would advocate for something like that for sure. And you could see those guys, that was a grassroots movement. Those guys were helping people in their community. Yeah. Clearly the black lives matter. movement. Where's the money going? My God. Yeah. It's so much Hundreds money. And what, 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 um, like, it doesn't seem like it's producing anything other than, I mean, right. it doesn't cost that much to put on a march and a protest. So where are all those hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. being, being <laughs> diverted to? And then, um, yeah. and then just to, just to kind of finish this point, this looks a lot like uh, any of the dozens of color revolutions that have clearly been funded by uh, American intelligence agencies and sp principally George Soros throughout the world, Ukraine, uh, the Middle East, uh, you know, e e there was even evidence that there was a lot, a lot of these organizations involved in the Hong Kong protests. Um, in Iran, they've been trying to start I mean, this is a classic color revolution is a classic technique for to create regime change where they take an issue that's that's a legitimate gripe, but they take it over and they use it to oppose uh, a leadership that's not playing the game. That's not, you know, playing ball with the with the plans of the elite in terms of the social engineering. And they'll take out uh, the leader like um, in the Ukraine uh, when the elected leadership was, he was leading towards Russia, uh, partnering with Russia in terms of an oil pipeline. I mean, this this pissed off the the Western, the European banksters. Yeah, we funded and we funded the Nazis. Lo and in, behold, in there's Ukraine a revolution to, and to, to overthrow the Ukrainian. Exactly, regime. clearly, clearly, super, real well, fascists. They're, you they're know? The, like, what are they? The the grandsons <laughs> of the Galatian SS. That's what uh, that's what Scott Hortons always always refers to them as. Yeah, that's, and that's who Obama and, and the Biden administration funded. Yeah, I mean, just a classic. And Say that uh, again, grandsons of what? The Galatian SS, I think, who are like the Eastern European wing of the of the SS during World War II. Yeah, and I can't remember the modern iteration, the name of the of the party in Ukraine that um I've watched a lot of stuff about those guys and yeah. they're they're oh. it's so crazy because they'll all like they'll ask them straight up like are you guys white power? Are you guys it's young young people in their twenties, eighteen years old, and they go to like these they send kids to like these summer right. camps and all this stuff and they'll ask them like and they'll be like, No, no, no. And then but they all have like swastika tattoos and white power tattoos it's it's wild yeah yeah i mean it's definitely the real deal going on there um as opposed to i would say what's happening here in the united states where they try to link every trump supporter with these white nationalists and i don't you know i just don't see uh, i mean i'm not saying there's no racism in the united states obviously it's a problem but i i'm not seeing the proliferation of you know, white nationalism in the way that the mainstream media would, would have you um, believe. Yeah. This is where Deborah and I disagree mm -hmm. greatly. So um, what do you like, explain to Doug, Deborah, what you think um, the race, the race relation, um, what's going on with that in America right now? 
Well, I, I, I can't really elaborate on it because I... But you think uh, that there's like a, a big problem with racism? Yeah, I film. do. I do. I think, you know, uh -huh. there's there's a lot of problems with, uh, you know, the redlining that was going on and, um, you know, people just getting dismissed. You can't have, a, you, you know, we're not going to give you a, a loan for a mortgage because, you know... Right. I mean, it, th that exists. People, uh, police pull over black people far more often for made up. Right. But what um, what strikes me, Deborah, is that everything that you quote as like a problem with systematic racism in America is something that's that's um, done by by the power system, like by the government. But as far as like everyday people. I don't know. You see an awful lot of, you know, Instagram and YouTube videos of people, you know, screaming at, you know, brown people or black people. I mean, hmm. you see an awful lot of that. Yeah, I mean, I guess, well, there's a couple of things that come to mind here. One is, from my perspective, I, I would argue that at, at least since the Oklahoma bombing, there has been a drive to take people who are quote unquote conspiracy theorists and link them with these white nationalist movements or the militia movement and then um and then discuss it all as far right um i don't follow any i don't follow any independent news that has anything to do with any kind of racism anything even I was disappointed in some of my news sources when they seemed to get a I had never heard, for example, of the alt-right. I mean, as someone that does this kind of research all the time, I'm on a daily basis, um, I had never heard of the alt-right before uh, the media started making a big deal about it um, in, with the Charlottesville thing. And so then I looked into that and... Um, you know, it's just kind of interesting to me. I think there is a lot of people, when you're in the left-right paradigm, you're not really listening to each other. Um, and what I've seen, because my, fa like my family is still Republican, and, but I live here in Northern California where I'm surrounded by progressives. And I, I feel like I get a pretty good <laughs> earful of the left-right paradigm. I mean, I, I, you know, in terms of what both sides are thinking. And... You know, a few years ago, especially around the, the Charlottesville time, um, when the mainstream media was really pushing this sort of resurgence of white nationalism or whatever, uh, I, was, I was feeling like people really just aren't listening to each other. Like the left started to come out with a lot of this language like white privilege and... Um, you know, just the, these, well, even the systemic racism meme, I'm trying to think of, but, you know, a series of memes that were coming out that describes this kind of this new, this postmodern political theory um, that these classes of people are oppressed by, you know, the white mainstream and that um, they need to be given more political power. And and then, you know, and this is kind of coming on the heels of this political correctness movement, um, where if you say things that aren't politically correct, right, then if your speech is, is not 
in line with the way you're supposed to talk about things, then you must automatically be a kind of a bigot or an uncaring person or, um, and this is what I, the, I guess to, from my perspective, what I found was that people on the quote unquote right were standing up for free speech. They weren't standing up for racism, but they were saying that like, hey, and, and a lot of people say would have had a problem with the concept of white privilege because I think there are a lot of disenfranchised white people as well. I think that African-Americans and indigenous Americans, you know, and, and lots of these oppressed groups have a lot in common with disenfranchised white people. I mean, clearly uh, police brutality affects people of color more than it does. It's disproportionate, but it's not like the white community also is not negatively impacted by police violence. Police violence is a problem. We should all be talking about it in my mind as, as one people concerned in our, about all of our communities with the fact that the police have been militarized uh, and police violence has been on the rise for decades. It's a concern for everyone. Um, and I so think, I'm I not think trying that um, the police violence that's going on right now, it's affecting white people as well, but I think it's along, along a class line and not as much of a race line as what's being sure. pushed because the, the white people that are being shot by the police, you know, I think there was 19 in 2009, there was nine black people who were unarmed shot by the police, 19 white people. Of course, there's the disparity in, it's, in, it's in, in, yeah. But um, I bet you you could look at most of those white people and they're poor white people as well. Right. Sure. Rich, pe rich white people aren't being shot by the police. And, and just to kind of go back to the original point, though, so these, these disenfranchised white people uh, don't feel like they have a lot of privilege, right? And so right. they're standing up against this term, white privilege, not because they're racist, but because they don't feel like they have privilege, right? Um, yeah. Which it's is like some like, think, guy who's a truck driver right. in West Virginia whose son died in Iraq and his other son's addicted to heroin now. He doesn't feel like he has white privilege, you know? And, he, and, and all of these people started getting pigeonholed as racist because they didn't like being called privileged because of the color of their skin. I mean, that to me seemed, that was, I think that was, real, that was really happening. Uh, and suddenly it became this racial divide when I'd like to see racial unity. I'd like to see everyone who feels disenfranchised by the corporate system, which is a lot of us, you know, <laughs> getting together and saying, screw you guys. You can't treat us like this anymore. And I think that there's, I mean, this is, would go back to this concept of a psychological operation. And it, just like the left-right paradigm, right, to divide and conquer, so these wealthy people um, who have been running, you know, the corporate empire for hundreds of years now, I mean, these families, um, they divide us by race. They want to keep white people and black people and red people and yellow people fighting each other because then we're not unifying to fight against them. And I think this is a classic case of that. Um, I, again, I'm not saying that African-Americans don't have their own set of problems. And I'm not saying that there's not systemic racism that's causing those problems. But I, can, I would bet my bottom dollar that two years from now, none of those problems are going to have been addressed, right? We're not at that. I mean, as much as all the people who are in the Black Lives 
Matters protests believe that they're going to affect some kind of positive change, it's not going to happen. The drug war is not going to end. You know, the gang violence isn't going to go away. These are all things that the rich people want. They're using these things, you know? Yeah. I mean, let's hope. I don't know. We'll see what happens with decriminalization in Oregon. I was a little bit blown away that that one happened. And, and I think you're going to start seeing a lot of real positive results, uh, especially for the uh, communities of color where, you know, the gang violence and the drug war and the three strikes you're out rules and all of that has impacted disproportionately. Um, you know, but to me, the solution is decriminalizing drugs, ending the drug war, uh, ending nonviolent crimes, getting people out of uh, all these people out of prisons that are in prison for nonviolent crimes. But nobody's talking about that. I right? mean, look, no, look who not... just look who just got elected, though. The yeah, guy that exactly. wrote the 1994 crime bill that made it so a ton of black people went to prison for minor drug offenses. And then the woman who was the DA in, in San Francisco, who put those people in prison because in prison, of that, because of that laws. bill. Unbelievable. So I, it's so the, that's the cognitive yeah. dissonance. That's just enrages me. And that's like, I get going on that. And that's what sends me down that whole left versus right paradigm, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And people learn to hate Trump so much that they didn't know to hate Biden, too, because, I mean, Biden is so responsible for so many of these problems. Uh, it's uh, like it actually boggles my mind. There was what's the asset forfeiture, civil yeah. asset forfeiture. He was 100 percent behind all of that, too. And that that incentivizes police violence. They want to come into your house and find some drugs and then they can steal all your money. You know, Do you I know mean, what um, civil asset forfeiture is Deborah. No, no. I was going to ask. Oh, we might explain it, Doug. Yeah, it's big. And because, you know, we've been in the cannabis community here for so long, it's a big deal because the cops can come and take your money. If they find cash, if they, if they come into your house and they find a little bit of drugs and you're suspected, of uh, potentially being a drug dealer. You don't go to court for any of this. They can freeze your bank account. They can take any cash that is on your premises. They could even take you know, cars if they can show that maybe you bought a nice car using drug money. Or they say um, you, you were transporting your pot in that nice new diesel truck right? out front. You know, All of this can be taken by the cops and and uh, and used. It goes into their, you know, into their budget. It's used for for their expenses. Um, And you don't they take it and you've never been charged with a crime. You've never been you've never gone to court. They can take your money anyway. And this was a direct result of legislation that was put forth by Joe Biden in the 80s and 90s. And then he also pushed. I mean, you know, again, just it's like unbelievable. All the things that have caused the problems really almost can all be traced back to Joe Biden in terms of this disparity, uh, why there are more African-Americans in prison, why there's more violence against the African-American community from the police, and how the police were incentivized to do all of this. I mean, it all tracks right back to Biden. And yet in the midst of this entire Black Lives Matter thing, this guy's the one they choose to get elected president. I mean, (laughs) it's so crazy. It's just it, yeah. That's and it makes me want to get into like weird, more weird, uh, you know, up is down, you know, stuff that that's a total different episode. But um, right, you know, I uh, it's just it makes me upset, and um, 
I don't know. I understand people hating Trump and, and not voting for Biden, but voting against Trump. I, I mean, I've never, I mean, I don't, I understand that people did that and I understand that they're, you know, have Trump derangement syndrome and stuff, but I mean, it's not, it's not a hidden, like the 1994 crime bill isn't, isn't hidden and it's more racist than any of Donald Trump's tweets, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Well that, and that's just what I mean. I mean, just kind of to go back to our original point, Deborah. like, I don't, I'm not saying that I like, do I think that the rich guys who control the system are racists? I mean, yeah, I'd go so far as to say they're eugenicists. They don't mind calling old people or sickly people, you know, they're, they, they have a belief system that I don't think any of us would think, you know, is, is in a good way or is helpful for the average person. But do I think that there's been this massive resurgence of white nationalism amongst the, the average, you know, American Trump supporter? I just don't see it. I think a lot of people, like I said, have stood up for freedom of speech. And then because their language is not quite politically correct, getting branded as racist and the mainstream media running away with this whole racism meme. And it's unfortunate to me because I think, again, that when you're dividing average Americans, no matter what the color of their skin is, then the people who are winning are these, you know, these corporate fascists at the top of the system and not, not anyone, not, not the average white person, not the average African-American, you know, not the average, uh, Hispanic American, I, you know, I, to my mind, we all need to be working together or else we're never going to overcome the, the corruption that's just endemic in the political and corporate system um, that's clearly literally getting away with murder um, while we all argue amongst ourselves based <laughs> on racial divides or left-right paradigm divides that to me have no foundation in any real substance other than people get inundated with this information from the mainstream media and then they want to pick a side and it's so easy to want to fight with people that you know they just get lost in that in that whole situation without actually seeking out working together to seek out real solutions to to these problems that we're dealing with um can i ask a question doug um what if you take the word white off of white nationalism is American nationalism necessarily a bad thing? You know, I mean, I, I'm such a believer in federalism, which is like, I want to see things, I very much want to see things decentralized, at least down to the city level. I, I actually kind of am a believer that city, you know, if, if you got to have a government at all, you should have a city state kind of you know, idea where you can feel an attraction to your city or even better yet, your community where, yeah. you know, people that you actually know <laughs> that you're talking with on a daily basis that are members of your community. When you have a problem, how do we educate our kids? Let's get together and figure it out. And actually my personal views would be, I think we can figure we could use, you know, a lot of on that level, like a lot of kind of collectivist concepts, um, you know, kind of like free schooling or cooperatives. Um, yeah. You know, I think workers cooperatives are a great way to organize businesses that are like resource extracting business. We have here in Mendocino County, you can see the Redwoods behind me. I mean, the red, there's one Redwood company in Mendocino County, basically that owns half the county, right? The, the Mendocino Redwood company 
It's like the king's land. This is a feudal system. These guys own half the county. They control our county government, no matter who we elect, because they're the biggest taxpayer. You know, they can pull the strings. Um, and it's just kind of outrageous to watch. And if that, if Mendocino Redwood Company was a, a workers cooperative, right, where all the people that worked had a share and had a vote and got a piece of those profits, I mean, I'm all about that kind of community organization so that the resources that are within your community stay within your community. And I think we would all be wealthy, everybody. I mean, there's abundance in the world if we didn't have the 0.0001% sucking all the money through the corporate system up to them and paying us all minimum wage to do the hard work for them and keeping us all in debt by design, right? I mean, clearly this is what's going on. I mean, that's another thing, like ending the drug war would, would serve, I think, communities of color so much, yet it's not even part of the conversation, except in Oregon, thankfully. Um, Where there isn't really a community of color. Well, right. <laughs> <laughs> we need to talk about decentralizing the banking cartel. I mean, we have a system that's designed to impoverish a certain percentage of the population because when they, they create money by making a loan, but you owe the loan back plus interest. So where does the interest come from? The interest comes from you competing with your fellow Americans to, to you know, fight for the scraps of the leftover money in the money supply so you can get enough money to pay back the interest on that loan because there's not enough money in the money supply to pay back the loan with interest. So we're competing for that interest money to pay back to the bankers, by the way. <laughs> and, and that means, you know, if you're in, basically in the big picture of things, the way our money system works is that if you take out a loan and you have 5% interest, then 5% of the population has to lose that, you know, in the rat race, and they're going to be homeless. They're going to be impoverished by the current system. I mean, it's just built in. Poverty is built into the current system. So I have an idea. Why don't we talk about public banking, which I've interviewed Ellen Brown multiple times. She's uh, the head of the Public Banking Institute. She started the Public Banking Institute, and we've talked about this concept, or even in my mind, just a system of competing currencies on a free market of currencies, which would then self-regulate because they'd be competing with each other. But either one of those systems eliminates the need for this debt-based system that automatically impoverishes a certain percentage of the population. I mean, that's just, it's crazy to me that we stand for this, right? That we tolerate living under the yoke of the current financial system, which is clearly designed to keep all of us in debt for most of our lives. If we are lucky enough to accrue more equity than debt by the time we die, we're, you know, we're in a good, we're in a really good place. We're in the 1%. Right. I mean, yeah. most people. Yeah, most people die with yeah with crippling debt. Yeah, under them that's that's passed on to the generations below them. I mean, it's just unbelievable. The system is completely designed this way. Yet in the mainstream narrative, are we ever going to have a conversation about public banking? No, they're not going to let us talk about that, right? Right. Just like, are we ever going to have a legitimate conversation about decriminalizing drugs? I mean, no, the private prison guys are making billions right now. They never let us talk about that, right? Yeah. They're, I mean, they're paying off, they're paying, they're paying for the guys that are 
the prison systems did you guys winners right now the prison systems and this blew me away i found this out probably eight years ago now there's this organization called alec the american legislative exchange council and they're the biggest lobbyist group they 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 write most most of the laws that get passed they're active on the state level and they're active on the national level all the major corporations give them all this money they write the bills they you know and then they they lobby the congressmen to pass the bills that they wrote and this is how our political system basically works and this one group does much of that if not most of that i mean they're super super powerful organization they lobbied they lobbied congress to set up a private prison system where private corporations started buying up all the prisons and doing that, which for anyone is like, well, that's just a crazy, why is it better to have, you know, prisons are part of the government. Why are they being privatized? Like, so anyway, we can think about that. Then they lobbied government for all the three strikes you're outlaws, right? Mm-hmm. So for th- if you get three strikes, man, you're going to prison for a long time. You get was, to, and, they, and they stuffed these private prisons. Was that three strikes was lumped into the 94 crime bill? I, I think, I think so. Yeah. yeah, I think, I think so. And then um, written by so, Joe Biden. Right. <laughs> so then you've got these private prisons stuffed to the brim with all these people that have three strikes and they inside those prisons, you got to understand those are slave labor camps. Those pe- many, many of those people in those prisons. And if you count the numbers right now, right now, in terms of the African-American community, there are more African-Americans in those prisons working for corporations for 50 cents a day, right? Because in those prisons, there are manufacturing plants for Nike and, you know, Microsoft. And I mean, all these, there, there are manufacturing plants these prisoners are working in. And they're getting paid nothing. They're getting paid like toilet paper money, 50 cents a day, a dollar a day. Yeah. And there are more people doing that, living life like that right now than there were slaves during before the Civil War. Like it's a crazy to comprehend. This is a slave system. That's what that's all it is. The the you know, they set up a slave system. There's hundreds of thousands of people now working for pennies on the dollar for major corporations, all set up by this organization, Alec pushed through by, with bills with, by Joe Biden, just like you're yeah. talking about. It just got theoretically elected president and not a peep of any of this in the mainstream, by the way, during the campaign or any. It's like nobody's talking about any of this. Well, I wonder why not. Yeah. So, so Deborah, this kind of comes full circle. Um, so when we had our we had on episode three, Doug, we talked we got into some race relations stuff and it didn't it got pretty contentious. Mm-hmm. And uh, Deborah quoted, you know, like that movie 13 and how there's, um, you know, all these black guys in prison doing slave labor, exactly what you're talking yeah. about. So Deborah, after making that point, I guess I missed, I missed the chance to just dunk it right in your face when I forgot to <laughs> say that, oh, well, what you just, all those stats and stuff that you just quoted are, are put in place by the regime that you just supported how does that and what doug's been talking about make you feel well you know it doesn't feel good i um i I, i'd be curious to know why the right never brought any of this up i mean 
you know, I, that's why I think the whole left-right paradigm, I mean, we, I mentioned um, just even talking about Trump and Q, like we could talk about the Q thing. I, I, I think so much of this, and I, you can't really prove it, um, but these are, are they're social engineering tactics, and they're, um, it, it's very manipulative. I mean, the left-right paradigm is not designed to, like, the right is not going to uh, attack Biden in this way that, you know, it's, it's all about dividing the people. Um, you know, Trump was to me between Trump and Q. I mean, what we were seeing in this, again, I always put quotes around it, but the conspiracy theory movement or whatever you want to call, call it in, you know, like, let's even go back to 2010, 2011 guys like James Corbett, would be at the top of your newsfeed every day on YouTube. These guys were getting hundreds of thousands of views, half a million views when they, when they would put stuff out. And we were starting to wake people up. I mean, it, we were using the internet to wake people up. And then, um, you know, this is interesting. I'm gonna bring up the Tea Party as well. I remember first starting seeing the Tea Party start to come to prominence when the tea party first started which nobody b remembers this but because i was following it at the time i i know it wasn't in the mainstream media and i was following them before they were in the mainstream media and it was an anti-federal reserve they wanted to audit the fed it was a non-partisan movement to audit the federal reserve because they want to see as all americans should be curious about what is the Federal Reserve doing with all the money that they're making. I mean, we have a right to know. And currently, and for the last hundred years, we haven't been allowed to see what they're up to. So it was a nonpartisan movement to, to audit the Federal Reserve Bank so we, the people, can see what they're doing with the money supply. And then corporate money moved in. They co-opted it, and they made it into a part of the far right. Right. And then the Tea Party movement became a, a far right wing of the Republican Party. And that's what everybody thinks of it as now. Well, it didn't start out that way, but they were able to co-opt it into the left right paradigm. And by the way, after they got co-opted, they dropped all the talk about auditing the Fed. Right. <laughs> that was no no longer part of the platform. Well, I this is exactly what Trump did to the conspiracy theory movement and then the QAnon phenomenon. Right. We, we as conspiracy theorists, I mean, certainly with my work and the people that I listen to, Derek Bros or The Last American Vagabond or James Corbett, constantly trying to tell people, get your minds out of the left-right paradigm. This is a divide and conquer technique. And in 2011, 2012, 2013, we were being successful. People were waking up. The internet allowed us enough freedom that we were able to express ourselves. The mainstream media was not, was losing ground to the independent journalists that were promoting this information and people were starting to listen. Well, enter Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump goes on Alex Jones when he's campaigning in 2015, 2016, and he starts to court the quote unquote conspiracy theory movement. He gets elected and I'm starting to see a lot of my conspiracy theory friends becoming Trump supporters. And I'm actually trying to tell them, don't be fooled by this. Trump is as much a part of the establishment as everybody else. Did he, 
Did he ever, he promised us the vaccines. Did he do anything about that? He promised us detente with Russia and peace in Syria. Did we get any of that? No, you know, because he was lying, because he's a politician, you know? I mean, and the powers that be certainly didn't want, even his, even he got slammed over the Russia thing and they had to turn it all into, you know, the Russian disinformation campaign came with the fake news campaign. And all of us conspiracy theorists were lumped together as Russian disinformation. I actually had people in my community where I'd send them, you know, an article and they'd just come back to me and say, oh, you know, the Washington Post says that website is, is Russian disinformation. And I'd be like telling them, where can you find any kind of link between these people? I mean, guys like the Ron Paul Liberty Report. You really think Ron Paul is Russian disinformation? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was crazy, but everybody was believing that the Russians were spreading fake news. And this was all came with Trump, right? This whole, you know, I see them as psyops now. Whenever the mainstream media really tries to promote one-sided issues where this is how the truth is and you see 200 articles i mean what was it joseph goebbels who said you know if you tell a lie enough times then everyone will believe it the bigger the lie the more people will believe it you know yeah <laughs> i mean and that's what i see the mainstream media as like just completely manipulating our perspective um we know that in the 50s and 60s they had operation mockingbird and we know that that happened with the church where they were propagandizing us specifically then the church committee came and theoretically they stopped doing it but there's no oversight in 2012 in the defense authorization act they slipped in this they got rid Smith of once yeah exactly which allows them to they're spent the government the u.s government right now spends like five billion dollars a year on propaganda against the united states in within within the country do you remember I, I, when uh, Charlie Robinson told us about that one, Deborah? The Smith Munt um, no. Modernization Act. Right. Okay. So the Smith Munt Act was from what, like the forties or something, and it yeah, said, it that, it said that it said that we, the media can't, or the media and the government can't propagandize Propagand yeah. American right. citizens. And then in 2012, right, Obama, yeah. I guess, didn't repeal it, but said modern modernized it, which just inverted yeah. it right and they slipped it into the defense authorization bill which they do every year because they know that's going to pass and so every year whatever super controversial fascistic you know move they want to make they slip it into the defense spending bill and then it passes and nobody debates it and the mainstream media never discusses it and it's always something you know just taking our rights right allowing the nsa to surveil on everybody I mean, you know, that's another thing that's like crazy, right? I mean, like Edward Snowden comes out and which, first of all, as someone in, who was paying attention to independent media, Edward Snowden didn't tell me anything I didn't already know. So that's ought to be a telltale sign that like, what, what was that really all about? The information was out there. The mainstream media mm -hmm. just didn't say anything to us until Edward Snowden made them have to address it. And then they come out with all, you know, the Edward Snowden revelations, which clearly showed the world that. Uh, you know, the United States was being spied upon indiscriminately by the NSA and by these intelligence agencies. And then nothing happened that made them stop. Uh, they're still doing it, right? No, and it's like nobody cared to actually make them stop doing that. <laughs> they just now Edward Snowden lives in Russia, uh, right? <laughs> and yeah. Julian Assange is in prison 
you know, and I just, I don't even understand what's going on right now in terms of the fact that people don't seem to care one whit about individual liberties. I mean, they don't care about freedom of speech anymore. They, they care. And this is again, Deborah, kind of going back to the, the, this is the thing that I think that a lot of people were speaking up against when they were speaking up against the term white privilege. They were really just talking. They didn't, it's not that they didn't want to fight racism or the, that they were racist themselves. They were just concerned about this freedom of speech issue. And then when they stood up to try to talk about freedom of speech, they've been branded as racist. And now everybody like this huge race debate is going on. I just think it's been kind of misguided. Um, like, I'm not saying it's not an issue that shouldn't be addressed. I'm just saying that it's being weaponized and, mm -hmm. and used against the people. So instead of actually figuring out how to solve the race, the, the real issues that happen as a result of systemic racism, we're actually just being divided against each other. And then they're using it as this way of like minimizing your, if you stand up for freedom of speech right now, you can get branded as a racist, Right. I mean, I, I've felt that way. There's this cancel culture going on that's, that's very real. And it's, I think it's coming from the left of the left-right paradigm. And it's making a lot of people who believe in things like the right of assembly or the right of free speech, um, you know, or the right to worship or whatever. I mean, a lot of these freedoms that have been taken from us just with the coronavirus in the last six months where there hasn't even been a conversation in the mainstream media about the importance of these ideas. If you come out, advocating i mean i've seen you know people that i went to college with really well-educated people who are like that's i think that's hate speech it should be censored just openly advocating for censorship right now and it's i think it's i mean it's going to a bad place and i know that people on the left they they they're acting out of uh, uh, the will to help people i mean i see that but it's like you have to be able to recognize that to live in a free society, that ultimately it's better to live in a free society than to live in a society where you force people to act, you know, in the way that you see is the right way to act. And I feel like that's really slipping away from the American mainstream right now, where they're not concerned with these fundamental rights. They just want to stop the people who disagree with them, no matter what. The government needs to step it up and stop these people who are spreading this hate speech. And a lot of people who think like me are getting caught in this dragnet of quote unquote hate speech just because we're speaking out against the dominant narrative and, and you know, posing questions that we think should be addressed. Um, I mean, it's, it's gotten crazy. Like you have to understand what happens it's like you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know? What's, what's going to happen in the next six months or a year when if you speak out against a mandatory coronavirus vaccine, you know, then they're going to be able to lock you up and throw away the key and they're going to be able to say you're engaging in hate speech or, I mean, they're already censoring this information on the, uh, you know, on social media and the government's supporting it and many of my educated friends are supporting it um i don't know what to do about that it's frightening to me and yet people are not they don't you know i mean why why do i feel alone when i point out how dangerous this is we're we're on the verge of taking a very very i mean i don't even say we're on the verge we've already headed down a very very dangerous road and if we don't pull back 
it's going to be game over for a lot of people. Um, I mean, the surveillance state, especially with the coronavirus thing, is and and the rollout of the 5G is going to grow exponentially. And like we talked about at the beginning, the the uh, if you follow the money, these corporations were set up five years ago. Like, I mean, the the corporations that are about to make billions of dollars on the Corona Pass, you know, <laughs> yeah, are were set up five years ago. And it's like, well, how? And and now they're all working behind the scenes together in this tight group of knit group of people uh, to promote these agendas. And we're going to be in an in an environment you know, where we're not going to feel comfortable speaking out against this stuff because the, ma- you know, the masses are going to, are going to say, Hey, you got to be quiet. I mean, it's like, it's like the people are starting to self police. Even when it, if you don't want to wear a mask, your neighbor's going to turn you in right now. I, you know, it's like, what do you mean? This is like, you know, East Germany or something where your neighbor is turning you in because you're not following what the party told you to do. <laughs> it's yeah. like, wow. Well, Doug, we're coming up against time right now. I think Deborah has to get out of here pretty quick. Um, I want to give Deborah, good. Deborah, you didn't, you didn't talk very much this episode. We got to get you more active. Um, why don't you ask Doug a parting question? Oh God, no! Don't put me on the spot like that. <laughs> um, I, 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 no, Adam, I can't do that. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, can I, I'll ask, I'll ask you the final question. I try to kind of try to end up on a uh, more positive note, Doug left right paradigm if uh for people like deborah who's sane but leaning left and me i don't know if i'm i'm kind of an unhinged conspiracy theorist but right. i'm reading, leaning a little bit right and i can notice that that's wrong how do people like us get out of it get out of the left right paradigm yeah i mean you know what's the interesting thing that's happened to me and i've really really tried to be open minded to people on the left i've literally spent years uh, on anarchist Facebook pages, trying to understand, you know, can we live in a society where like there is no money and everything's sort of like decided by the group or by a consensus, or we have some system set up. And I think for the big picture, I just can't be convinced. And I still go back to my own libertarian roots. So, I mean, that's my disclaimer. I, I admit that if I have a cognitive bias, um, then that's um, a confirmation bias, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to kind of lean towards my libertarian roots. And I think in terms of a large, like I've kind of discussed it in terms of the bigger picture, like on a nation state level, I think it is, I, I can't see a way to get out of it to have a really efficient and functional economy without a free market, especially to, to my mind, including the free market and currency, which is the major monopoly that the very wealthy take advantage of right now to use against us. But then again, on a community level, like I was discussing, I think a lot of these left-wing ideas are, are really applicable. If you've got your 50 friends or your extended family or even a larger like workers cooperative, I think we can organize this in this kind of way. So there's a lot of different ideas where, well, you know, it, it's, it depends on the scale. Um, and so what, where I've been going with it is I really advocate for just decentralization. And I hope that because people on the left have a tendency to think that, well, you know, everybody in the world has a right to this free health care. So if we had a world government that gave free health care to everyone, then that would be great, you know. 
And, and like, so this bigger and bigger system that gives everyone, you know, access to these same economic rights. And I, I, I just want to remind people that first of all, that's, it's very, uh, it's, it's homogenizing to think that everyone in the world needs the same kind of healthcare uh, is, is really destructive of the cool little niche culture that can develop in your own community uh, depending on the resources that are available in your community, you know, and, and the different kinds of, I mean, even if you look around the world and the different kinds of health cares that have existed throughout the world, like there's traditional Chinese medicine and there's Ayurvedic medicine and there's indigenous medicine. And, you know, lots of these have been functional in lots of different ways. And so I just hope that people can start to value that solutions are found on the community level that the more that we think about things on this like really expanded, you know, worldwide or even nation state level um, where everybody has the right to the kind of healthcare I like or the kind of education I prefer, you know, I just want you to take a step back and think, you know, maybe people want a different kind of education than you want or, you know, a different kind of, of healthcare than you want. And, and the more important thing is to, to have the freedom to choose those kinds of, you know, those kinds of alternative choices. Um, that's what creates a world of diversity. That's what gives us, um, y- you know, I mean, I think it's just a healthier worldview to want for, for different communities to have different choices to grow in different ways. Um, and, and then, you know, some, some communities are going to make choices different than other communities. Sometimes they're both going to be happy and healthy, even though they're going to be different. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we can look at the one community, you know, if a community gets kind of dictatorial or kind of fascistic, it's easier to move to the next community down the road than it is to move, you know, oh my God, I got to leave the United States or God forbid a world government where you can't go anywhere on the planet without escaping, you know, the constant surveillance state or whatever, it seems to be going in that direction, right? So, I mean, I think that's, that's ultimately where I'm going with it when I talk to people. I mean, I, it's so, I, I've, I've been biting my tongue for years and I've been trying to learn how to get along with people on both the left and the right and kind of like wake them up to the possibility of getting out of the left-right paradigm and thinking in this different way. And, and the only thing, the only way I can go with it now is this, this decentralization argument. Like let's have these conversations within our communities and let's help people really help them on a, on an individual one-on-one basis or build our community up so that when a member of our community falls down because of drug addiction or psychological problems or lack of education or, you know, health problems, then our community is there to help lift them up. And, and I think that's where the virtue really happens. I mean, what I think happens on these, when you're centralizing the system and you're arguing the left-right paradigm, then even virtuous ideas aren't really virtuous because you're, wa- you're not helping someone. You're wasting time arguing about how the government could help someone, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. you have an ultimate agenda that's, that's based right. on that. If we took that energy away, all the, I mean, think about the billions of dollars that are even spent. I've, I've often thought people on the left, I wish you would all just start a, a large co-op. If every Democrat's put 10 bucks a month into a large co-op where any member of the co-op could, you know, have access to the healthcare and, you know, education and all of these things, instead of arguing with Republicans about it, you just make it for yourself. 
and people mm-hmm. can, be, can yeah. be done voluntarily. Yeah, and we're given we're given the A or the B choice, but That's, you got the whole alphabet. I mean, that we're just stuck on right. And the billions of dollars that are spent on all these campaigns and elections. And the, I mean, you guys are giving billions of dollars to the Democratic Party anyway. Like, just give it to poor people, you know, I, like help um, people out. <laughs> a, st- a statistic I remember from around the last election um, was when uh, if, if every registered Democrat had donated $12, it would have funded Planned Parenthood. Yeah. So, well, Doug. That was yep. amazing. And Thanks, um, I'd that love to have fun. you on again. You always sure. have an, an open invite here. I think Deborah's Great. been broken down enough on like uh, corporate <laughs> media and stuff like that, that we can um, start taking this podcast in a little bit weirder direction. <laughs> right. It gets, it gets pretty far out the farther down the rabbit hole you go. And, yeah. and it's, 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 and I'm, I'm just like, uh, I just got my toe barely dipped yeah. in. So. Oh, you got your old I remember, now, Deborah, I remember, so. Deborah. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> so, uh, Doug, um, let everybody know uh, where they can find you. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the the you you really have to actually kind of look. I think on Google, I still actually come up pretty well if you type in. But mostly my name, Doug McKenty, and you'll find me. But The Shift with Doug McKenty is the name of the show. And uh, you can find me on YouTube under... You, you have to type in the shift with Doug McKenty or it'll try to send you somewhere else. Um, and on Facebook, uh, I have a, um, I have a page for the shift with Doug McKenty. I'm on Twitter at D McKenty and I'm really trying to get more and more people to go to my website where we have control over, uh, you know, all the information. We don't have to worry about the censorship so much. So the website is www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, and all of my information is, is up there. I've got uh, over a hundred interviews that I've done over the years, three different shows. Um, and you got so, a really, you got a really impressive uh, list of uh, interviews. So I really implore people to go check it out. And yeah, um, yeah if you'd like, I, I'm going to pass your name on to um, some other people that I know that, that have shows and I think they'd be really happy great. to have you on. So yeah, I'd love um, to, I, I love talking to other podcasters because we can talk big picture stuff, you know, and, and it's, we, we all have our little bit of a different twist as to what's going on, but it's fun to, to learn from other people that are as into all of this stuff as I am. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Once again, Great. thanks. Thank you so much. Thank and thanks you. for uh, yeah, doing this. It was my pleasure. Notice, and hopefully thanks, someday Deborah. I get to meet you in real life at some sort of freedom, freedom gathering. Sounds like a plan. Um, Great. Well, enjoy the rest of your day, guys. Um, you thank you guys. You too, all. Adam. I love you, Deborah. Thank you, Doug. Love you, Adam. And um, yeah. See you guys later. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Take care.